10.30 a.m. on Saturday, October 7, Hamas fighters crossed from Gaza into southern Israel as more than 5,000 rockets were fired by the militants from the enclave into Israeli towns and cities in an attack that surprised Israeli officials, security forces, and civilians. The group called the attack Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. In the hours and days that followed, more than 1,000 people from both sides were killed as fighters opened fire at a music festival, capturing dozens of hostages and engaging in deadly battles with security forces. Israel responded with a barrage of rockets into Gaza that struck residential homes, UN-funded schools, where hundreds were taking shelter, and of course, Hamas targets. Right now, at least 91 Palestinian children have been killed in Gaza. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has since said that Israel is now in a state of war. An Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant has ordered a complete blockade on Gaza, including fuel, food, water and electricity, sending panic among civilians who don't know how they will be getting their next meal. Meanwhile, Hamas officials describe these attacks as a response to what they called the crimes of the occupation. So what happened in Israel on Saturday? How are the people of Israel and Gaza dealing with the escalation of violence? What's next now, as the fighting has lasted for two days with no indication of an upcoming ceasefire as of yet? This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Nada Al-Tahir. In this episode, we'll examine what is currently happening in the Gaza-Israeli conflict. We'll speak to the Nationals correspondent in Jerusalem, Thomas Helm, to find out what is happening there and the general mood in Israel. We'll then hear from Nagam Mohanna on the Gaza Strip, who has been reporting on the situation. Tom, thank you for joining us today. It's been very difficult for you the past two days. Tom, what have you been seeing and experiencing since this whole thing started on Saturday? The response from Israeli officials is extreme, Uh, perhaps understandably. This is a huge failure from authorities. And we've had comments of the importance for national unity, but we've also had some very intense expressions of official officials basically wanting revenge. Uh, The recent comments from Defence Minister Gallant are ones that will stay with Gazans as they they experience the the latest round of barrages. He's announced a blockade. I think Israelis are... It's a complicated situation. They've been here before but they're very conscious that they've never quite had such a terrible situation. Yesterday, I was mostly around medics. I was firstly in the main emergency department of Ashkelon's uh, Ashkelon's primary hospital. Medics there were exhausted, uh, depressed, unwilling to talk. I spoke to a few hospital porters who were shaken beyond belief. Not only had they seen the worst sights, imaginable they were all from the local area and they were scared that they would soon be seeing the bodies of their children and family. I then traveled down south to a field station made up entirely of volunteers. The atmosphere there was a lot 
uh, more electrified. People were willing to talk. People were proud of their country, even though they, like the doctors in Ashkelon, had seen things they never thought they would see. So it's a mixture of national unity, intense shock, emerging anger at the uh, failure, but that's not the overriding sense yet. There is still the feeling that these questions are to be asked later. Uh, Palestinians, it's a mixture of feeling the need to condemn the most brutal aspects of the Hamas attacks, particularly as it concerns hostages. But there are many that say, we saw this coming. The Israelis thought they could manage the conflict, but we as Palestinians, wherever we are, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza, knew we know the reality. We know what people have been facing. And we know that the response would be extreme. They didn't think it would be as creative, but they saw this coming and the Israelis didn't. Hamas has taken Israeli hostages. That much we know. What is their goal from doing so and how many have been taken so far? We don't know the precise goals. We're certainly talking about more than 100, and that number will change. The immediate thinking is that Hamas will ask for uh, prisoners, their security prisoners, to be released from Israeli jails. In recent years, we've seen hostage negotiations where a very small number of Israeli hostages have been released in return for a far greater number of Hamas prisoners. So we can expect Hamas's demands to be massive, perhaps beyond the pale for Israel. But at the same time, Israel is shocked and uh, humiliated by this successful hostage-taking operation by Hamas. So we will either see negotiations or we will see a ground invasion to extract the hostages which will be bloody and awful. And this also, I suppose, limits Israel's ability to strike Gaza. Uh, Bombardments are a very blunt weapon and Hamas will be hiding hostages in places that make it harder for Israel to bomb. Now, which, which points to there being a ground invasion, which has the capacity to be a lot more precise But there will be a huge human cost. Israel will probably have to deploy within the region of four troops to every one Gazan, uh, every one Gaza fighter. So it's a it's a it's a huge cost. Hamas did say that four of the hostages it took from Israel were actually killed in an Israeli strike on Gaza, which includes um, the death of Hamas fighters as well. So it's a real risk run by Israel to be targeting these positions. Back to Ashdod and Ashkelon, where you were, Al-Qassam Brigades, which is Hamas's armed wing, said this morning that it has struck areas over there. And we know that at least four people have been injured um, based on Israel's emergency medical services. How rare is it for militant groups to be targeting these areas in southern Israel? Well, I can tell you uh, that today as I was pulling into the car park, the massive car park underneath the Mamilla Mall, Uh, which also serves as perhaps Jerusalem's largest bomb shelter that emergency sirens were going off. There haven't been many sirens in Jerusalem because it is further away. It's the ultimate escalation for Hamas to enact because Israelis view this as their eternal capital. 
Uh, it's also home to the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Western Wall and the Holy Sepulchre. So the risk of a miscalculation, a huge, it would be essentially the one of the largest PR disasters in history if one of these, particularly if Al-Aqsa Mosque was hit. But uh, in Ashkelon, yes, there was a rocket strike that, that got through. There was a fire in a building. Uh, and there have been other ones. The, the rockets are, you don't want to say dying down because the threat is still there. But I've seen the Iron Dome in operation. I heard it uh, throughout um, my time in just outside Sterot. Uh, it, it has a, a, a fantastic interception rate, but with the amount of rockets that are being sent in, it's inevitable that some will fall through. Okay. What about the Israeli-Ghazan border? Is it secure or are there ongoing battles over there? No. As far as I know, the Israelis have said they have secured the area, but there's still a risk that Hamas fighters are operating. So it's an ambiguous statement. And I think it points to the fact that there are a huge number of Israeli troops now in the south. But they can't rule out that people are still getting through or that there are sleeper cells that got through and are hiding. Uh, a good illustration of this was yesterday as I was on my way down to Ashkelon. Uh, suddenly the traffic stopped uh, and sirens started blaring and military jeeps uh, came rushing down the hard shoulder with troops running out. We didn't know what was happening. We saw a dust cloud off to our right up position behind the concrete barrier of the motorway. Uh, we later found out that gunmen were in a car and were shooting. And the military, you know, this is north of Ashkelon. This is this is not by no means they're up. Uh, were were operating, and you know, it was it was dangerous to be there, but it was also fascinating because I saw what must have been a 75 year old man clad in military gear, uh, looking like a special forces operation, uh, operative, apart from the fact that his helmet was on sideways, taking up arms. They're, they're mobilizing everyone. Yes, Israeli officials did say that this is the biggest mobilization in Israel's history with 300,000 Israeli reservists. Precisely. And it's important to notice, to, to note that there is an official draft and then there's an unofficial draft. Mm. I was also outside a kibbutz, or sorry, I should say a moshav, which is a collection of private farms, uh, where the young men were at the front and we approached, uh, an improvised roadblock was set up by the residents. We approached, we were told that we were not welcome there. And it was essentially fathers and grandfathers uh, armed, as many Israeli civilians are, with uh, getting ready to protect their community. Eventually, we, we spoke to them and we were allowed to shoot there and, and they became friendly. But again, it was an illustration that you have Israeli troops going to the front, but you also have Israeli people mobilizing in a way that you can in very few countries because they are all trained militarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of them are. And they have arms. Uh, and they also have a sense that any threat could happen at any stage and that they are the ones that are accountable for their responsibility. For is their there support. a worry that this is going to have wider implications? As we know, Lebanon is just on the border and Israel has always been very wary of Hezbollah over there. 
conflict feels upside down. The Israeli military uh, before this were briefing very heavily to journalists about the threat from Lebanon. Mm. Uh, Hezbollah has uh, built tunnels, tunnels into Israeli territory. Uh, they have uh, erected tents in disputed territory. They have fired anti-tank missiles at the Israeli border, um, creating this sense that they are setting the agenda in the north. So I think it is no surprise that there are now early reports of Hezbollah fighters entering, early reports, uh, we can't confirm them yet, and the odd rocket getting through as well. Uh, this has taken a few days to emerge, although there were some rockets early on. And it's important to note that uh, Hamas have sophisticated rockets, but, but Hezbollah has more. They have hundreds of thousands within reach of Israel's main cities and uh, hugely sophisticated rockets at that. So I think, yeah, the upside down nature of this conflict may led people to think that Hezbollah would strike first, possibly, and then Gaza, and mm. then possibly, you know, as elements in Syria joining in. Mm. But it's a grim reality, but I wouldn't be surprised if Hezbollah is now considering it. They have a lot to lose. Lebanon is a economically ruined country, and Israel showed in 2006 that it can pummel its, its northern neighbor. And they will have no reservations about doing that again if, if these early reports are true. Thank you, Tom, and we hope you stay safe. By the time we had spoken to Tom, the death toll in Gaza had gone up to 560 people, indicating just how quickly this conflict is unfolding. Thousands of residents of Gaza have found themselves homeless after Israel launched hundreds of airstrikes. Israel also cut off power, internet, and water to the territory, putting more strain on an already stretched medical infrastructure. Nara Mohanna from Gaza gives us more details on the situation there, and you can actually hear the bombing in the background as she speaks. There is no underground shelters in Gaza, which make it difficult for people to guarantee the safety for themselves and for their families. Residents who live near the border areas, already they flee and went to the center of the city, staying inside enormous schools, which turned to be shelters for more than 20,000 and number is going up as the shelling continues. Israel cut around 150 mega of, Ga- mega of Gaza power at the beginning of the war. This reaction result decreasing on hospitals capacity working. Hospitals run the generator around the hour that leads in, incre- in decreasing the stock of fuel which will not be resupplied because the continuous of closing borders of Gaza. The medical crew working around the hour trying to operate with full capacity, but the huge number of wounded make the doctor's work as challenging. Hospital asking people to donate blood because they have shortage in stored blood unit. That's it for today, but that's not all we're going to be covering on Gaza and Israel. For more information on what's happening there, keep an eye out on our website, thenationalnews.com. Thank you this week to Thomas Helm and Naran Muhanna. We hope they both stay safe as they continue to report to us from the ground. We were produced this week by Phil Green and Dua Farid, and I'm your host, Nadal Tahir. 
If you want to get every episode of Beyond the Headlines as soon as it's released, then please subscribe in your podcast app.